So uh, I thought I would uh, do what I did last week and read this uh, little piece from step two um, of this new book. Um, so I'll, I'll start just by reciting step two, which says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And then I will say that I have, there's a little introduction, and then I have the what's this step about uh, piece. And I have to say that, you know, I'm not a representative of any 12-step program, nor do I claim to be uh, you know, showing people the way to really do the steps or that, that anything like that. Um, I'm trying, just trying to be helpful and, and uh, blend these two practices and traditions, whatever you want to call them, that, that have been so helpful for me. And when I say what's this step about, you know, it, it's, you know it's my opinion about what it's about, but I'm trying to get at get past the kind of, uh, I want to say rhetoric, but that's not quite the right word, get past the um, sort of image of what the steps are, the kind of frozen way that the steps get. So, in any case, step two presents us with the first reference to God in the steps, here characterized as a power greater than ourselves. The capital P lets us know we're serious now. <laughs> if you have issues about God, as so many who come to my teachings do, this is the first button that gets pushed in the steps. How are you going to deal with that? I know a lot of people just say, I can't do the 12 steps, or they simply won't try a 12-step program because they see the word God. That's fine if you are actually going to try to deal with your problem in another way, but often this winds up being excused to not deal with the problem, whether it's drinking, drugging, or something else. There are some who have developed programs that intentionally avoid any reference to higher power, and I think that's great. Great. I've chosen instead to, quote, work within the system of the 12 steps. My belief or philosophy is that every path of recovery, and indeed every authentic spiritual path, must contain some basic elements common to all. And so what I'm interested in discovering in the 12 steps is those fundamental components. And one of those components, it turns out, is trust or faith in the process itself, as well as in our own capacity to achieve a spiritual awakening. In step two, we are confronted with this question of faith or belief. So now we have the heading, what's this step about? When I first read the 12 steps, I thought step two was saying, if you just believe that God will fix you, the power of your faith will take care of everything. This was a very Christian reading of the step, which might very well have been its original meaning. I was willing to suspend disbelief and skepticism and play along. God, sure, why not? That worked for a while. I kept doing the grunt work of recovery, everything from showing up at meetings, being of service and writing inventory, to getting a day job, going back to school, and starting to deal with my relationship issues. There was a feeling of magic that everything seemed to be falling into place, all those little, quote, God shots and synchronous moments. People kept showing up just when I needed them, teachers, employers, friends, and it all seemed to be happening because I, quote, let go and let God. That's one way of looking at it, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that way of looking at it. Maybe. Today I see step two in completely different terms. First of all, the way I understand it now is that the step is saying, there is hope, it's possible to change, things can get better. The reason that statement is important is that when you're an addict, you don't think you can change. In fact, that's the whole point. You want to stay loaded all the time. You don't want to change. One of the reasons it's so hard to take step one to actually quit drinking and using is that the question that looms in the background is, what then? How are you going to deal with not drinking? We have the sense that our life is going to be the same, only worse, because we won't have the relief of getting high. Why would we choose that? 
The whole reason we are getting loaded all the time is that we don't want to be in our life as it is. Step two is offering us an alternative. It's saying there's a completely different life out there for us. Okay, but the step says a power greater than ourselves. Just believing that it's possible to change and for your life to get better doesn't seem to involve some big power. But if we think about it, for anything to happen, some power or force or energy has to be involved. To get out of bed, a lot of muscles have to be involved. To take a midterm exam, a lot of study and thinking have to be in play. Nothing happens without power, and the power of intentional change is the power of karma. Actions have results. That's what the law of karma says. Drink and use all the time, and the result is addiction. Stop drinking and using, and the result is being clean and sober. When we take one, step one and stop, that's essentially what we're doing, using the law of karma to establish ourselves in recovery. If we don't believe we can change, if we think we are bound to stay addicts forever and that we can't heal, then we don't believe in the law of karma. We are saying, no matter what actions I take, I am fated to be a suffering addict. From a Buddhist point of view, this is delusion or a wrong view. It means that we don't understand the way the world works. We believe in fate, that everything is preordained and that we have no power to do anything about it. Nonetheless, most of us, when faced with the question, do my actions have any effect on my life, will say, yes, of course. The Buddha said that if our actions didn't bring results, he wouldn't bother teaching people because there would be no way for them to achieve enlightenment. They wouldn't be capable of change. But this belief that we can't change is implied in the despair of the addict who can't seem to stay sober or feels stuck in negative emotional or behavioral patterns. That's why it's important to take step two, to confront this often unacknowledged belief consciously and see how we are being held back by our delusions. Once acknowledged, we can begin to consciously build a belief system. We can ask ourselves, what do I need to do to change and grow? Then we can begin to access the powers at our disposal, powers like love, determination, awareness, wisdom, the support of others, and yes, faith. Whether we know it or not, as addicts, we've been using powers, but mostly negative ones like selfishness, impatience, fear, and resentment. Recovery means working with the positive powers. The faith or belief involved in step two is when we, quote, come to believe that it's actually worth changing our behavior and orientation. Once we believe that change is possible and that it's worth making the commitment to a new way of living, we are ready for step three. So, a little bit long-winded. Maybe we'll have to edit that a little bit, but... Uh I, I'm not even that fond of the term higher, <laughs> actually, in this step, a higher power. Uh, you know, the, uh, I mean, there, there's ways in which Buddhism is really kind of equated with a kind of relativism. But, and that's, I don't think that's entirely... Uh, inaccurate, uh, although it's partially inaccurate. <laughs> um, but uh, what's important to me is, is to figure out how to work with the powers that exist, and not to say that, oh, this is higher, and sort of put a moral value or judgment on the type of power um, because that somehow kind of calls up, a, for me as an, I don't know if it has something to do with being an addict, but it kind of calls up a rebelliousness for me, potentially. Um, and, and, um, and sort of, and, and the potential of like, oh, I'm not doing the right thing, I'm bad, you know. And it's just, because who's to say that those are higher and lower um, don't know. Um, we can get enraptured. Maybe I'm. I'm not sure this. I'm just going to follow this line of thinking for a moment. See if it makes sense. We can get enraptured with certain elements of spiritual practice, for instance, <coughs> and it can be out of balance in a way that actually isn't helpful. Even though you could say. Like it's kind of a higher power. For instance, 
I actually had fr uh, lunch with a friend today who has a chronic and rare um, form blood disease that's a kind of cancerous in some way, but it's like he's had it for a long time and he lives with it. Um, and once years ago, he, he's a really serious mindfulness practitioner. Uh, I really admire and respect his commitment to mindfulness, and he uses it to deal with his illness in very effective ways. And he's, uh, you know, very determined and has tremendous integrity around it. And he once went to the hospital. He either walked or rode his bike because he didn't have a car. I think he rode his bike because he like, does that a lot. Saying, you know, I'm not, not feeling good, you know, I think. And they, and they took some of his blood and looked at his condition. They said, how did you get here? He's like, well, I rode my bike. Well, you, couldn't, you couldn't have ridden your bike. You, you're actually, you know, you should have been brought here in an ambulance. Your condition is, you know, so severe. Um, and it was because he's so skilled at working with the pain that something was off. And his teacher, who actually lives with some, one of his teachers who he's been very close with, who actually works with her own chronic illness, told him, you were the, uh, lacking in something called clear comprehension. So my, this is one of the classical ways of describing mindfulness, that there's the quality of just paying attention and being present in the, the present moment to your present moment experience, like pain, 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 you know, uh, tired, tired, exhausted. And then there's clear comprehension is the part of your mind that makes a wise decision in relation to what you're experiencing. You know, so you don't just like walk down the street going step, step, step. Oh, I, there was a car coming. I didn't see it coming. I forgot that when you step, you actually need to pay attention to something bigger. So she was like, no, you know, when you're feeling all that pain and discomfort in your body, clear comprehension says, I need to go to the hospital and I need to take a taxi or, a, you know, a call name. So, you know, is mindfulness higher than, you know, not just being like reactive to, wow, I feel terrible, I, oh, you know, that you would think, well, geez, he, he was really being mindful and, and managing to work with the pain, but, you know, that it was counterproductive. I, mean, I don't know if this is just a tangent, but uh, I'm just, uh, just in terms of, again, kind of higher, lower, God, you know, uh, this language just becomes uh, potentially not helpful. All right, let me try to be helpful. Um, I will find my notes, which I probably stuck away somewhere. Well, I know what I want to do. I want to um, just do a little contemplation with you guys. Now, again, con a contemplation is when we just take some time to be quiet and reflect on a particular question. Um, And so this, uh, I sometimes use this as an interactive exercise, but tonight I just want to do it as a, a personal exploration. So I'm just going to, you don't have to sit up specially, but do close your eyes for a moment. And just take a breath and relax. One of the things that I think is very important for us is to acknowledge our own inner strength and our outer supports. So when we take step two, we have confidence in our own capacity to grow, to recover. So first of all, I'd like you to reflect on the personal qualities you have 
that have allowed you to survive, that have allowed you to survive your addiction or whatever challenges brought you to recovery. What capacities do you have? And see if you can be as specific as possible. Reflect on your life. Do you have courage or determination? Honesty. Compassion, a good heart. Integrity. A wish to make the most of life. What personal qualities do you manifest? Just really acknowledge those for yourself. You're not being egotistical by acknowledging these things. It's just a a simple kind of inventory of certain positive qualities. Not to discount that there may be some negative as well, but just to remember these. You didn't just happen to show up here tonight. Some longing to grow or to learn, to heal, or to just wake up. That longing is so powerful. Now I'd like you to reflect on what outer resources you have, what people you have in your life, organizations, teachers, family, friends, partner. What are the Things that help you to grow, to heal, to recover. Maybe your program, sponsor. There's a whole world that will support us if we let it. This exercise is called, I'll be okay. I'll be okay because I have these inner resources. I'll be okay because I have these outer resources. I am okay.
I have the resources I need to continue on my spiritual journey. So as I said, I often do this as an interactive exercise where each person says, I'll be okay because, and then starts to uh, share the things that uh, they see as support. But, um, I have another exercise for you guys to do tonight. So um, we're on step three. I actually, uh, um, I don't want to bore you guys, but um, a certain amount of, uh, what I, well, that's just my ego, you know. Yeah, I know, it is, it has a good intention, I will say that. It's a positive intention. Yeah, I really want to bore, see if I can bore people, because maybe they'll just get so bored that they'll just be meditating, or I don't know, their minds will just go blank. No, I, I, I say that because, um, you know, I mean, one of the things about the 12-step world is that we're kind of used to sharing, and this, the Buddhist world is more about, well, the teacher's up there, and they're going to talk to me, you know, and so try to find some balance in that. But, but particularly with step three, I feel that there's a bunch of stuff that I, I want to say. And, um, and also, you know, I will... One of the things I'll say is that my book, A Burning Desire, is really about step three. And I didn't even actually realize that until I was about halfway through it. Um, I thought it was about all the God steps, and that was kind of my plan. But as I wrote it, the question I kept asking myself was, how is this element of the Dharma or this aspect of Buddhism something, a power that I can turn my will and my life over to? And so I, after a while I realized, oh, I keep asking this third step question. Um, so I, I mentioned that because I can't cover everything that's in, a, in that couple hundred pages uh, in, a, in an evening. Um, so if, I, if, there, if you have other questions about what I'm talking about, that's probably the best place to find more about it. Um, and I, I hesitate to read another piece, so I'm going to try to summarize a little bit uh, what I what I say from here. Um, that I guess the, when I first started looking at step three as something to write about in one breath at a time, uh, and I just kind of reflected on it and. It just hit me that, for me, kind of the first thing that's really important about the step is the commitment that I'm making in it. So it says we made it, step three says, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. So, I don't believe in God as I understand Him, because I don't believe that God is a Him. I believe that God is a useful shorthand for what I do believe in, but the problem with it is that most people think that when I use the word God that I'm talking about Him. And so uh, I have to be, uh, you know, dance around that. Um, but the, so, so coming back to this idea of a decision, uh, you know, that for an addict to make a decision, that's progress already. Because addiction is not a decision. It's an impulse. It's a compulsion. There's, there's no thought. You know, so if we actually stop and go, oh, what should I do? That's progress. You know, what I should do is go pick up some heroin and then... Maybe uh, a six-pack, and I, I need to get some clean works because that 
whole hep C thing is going around, I heard about. And uh, yeah, so I mean, we just don't think like that. But what I think the step is trying to get us to do, first of all, is to shift the direction of our lives. That, as I talked a little bit about earlier, that the, you know, the direction of the life of an addict is towards pleasure-seeking, pain avoidance, selfishness, self-centeredness, um, you know, for me, it was avoiding responsibility. I know some people, you know, take on too much responsibility. But certainly the kind of just aiming at me, 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 and the sort of things like morality kind of go by the wayside, things like other people kind of go by the wayside, things like responsibility to a community go by the wayside, um, things like people we love, you know, can go by the wayside. And um, so to turn our will, I li actually, the, I like, it just occurs to me that I like that word turn. It's not just turning our, over, but actually turning our lives uh, in another direction. So uh, to me, it's first of all, turning away from those impulses, then turning towards you know, ethical living look, you know, asking what my actions have, what effect my actions have on others. Thinking about the more long-term results, like other than the next 45 minutes, you know, of what I'm doing. You know, how am I going to feel about, feel about this tomorrow? <laughs> Just that question, wow, that would have been enough to change everything. Um, so it's this big shift that is going against all our impulses. It's not natural you know, to who we are, but the time when we get to, you know, to needing it. You know, we, we, it's, and so to say um, that we're turning our will and our lives over to the care of God is just, as, you know, just one way. You know, it's, I guess it's just as good as anything of saying, I'm turning it away from that, my ego, and turning towards something else. Asking, what sh really should I do? You know, what would be the right thing to do? So when we can see it uh, in Dharma terms, so it, it, there's kind of coming, uh, you know, the moment of clarity, realizing that the actions that I've been taking have created the life that I have. Like they say, if you want what you have, keep doing what you're doing, something like that. So I start to realize that it's really the actions that I've taken that have created the life I have. I need to start to take different actions. I need to take actions that I don't actually want to take or that feel unnatural. But I, and so all of that then points towards Finding, well, what's a good way of acting? How should I act? You know, I, and so, from a Buddhist viewpoint, this is like trying to understand the law of karma. How does the law of karma work? You know, what leads to what? This is a key human question. It's not a theoretical one, and it's not a, just a spiritual one. It's actually directly involved with things like politics. You know, some people think that... Um, if we uh, give money to poor people, it will help them to pull themselves up out of poverty and, uh, and improve their lives. Other people think if you give money to poor people, it'll make them dependent and then uh, you know, they'll just become you know, uh, wards of the state. So that's a question of karma. How do, what are the effects of that action? Politics is actually most of the arguments are about cause and effect. What's going to happen? Some, you know, so it, it, it's not just theoretical or spiritual. But we, for ourselves, have to. You know, it's pretty clear. A lot of things are really clear when we actually wake up to. Okay, what's the smart thing to do? Right? 
I mean, we know. We've, first of all, we've had the experience of where drinking and using or sex or gambling or codependence or whatever our habitual behavior has been, where that leads. We understand that cause and effect. And most of us learned when we were, you know, in kindergarten. What was that thing about everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten? Remember that one? What was right and wrong, what we were supposed to do. In a way, for me, recovery is a return to innocence. No, it really is. It's not that complicated. I mean, it's complicated internally and emotionally, but intellectually it's not complicated at all. We actually know most of the time what the right thing to do. Sure, we can't always make decisions, should I take this job or that job or whatever, I mean, you know, but in terms of our morality and living right in the world, we know. Sometimes called conscience. You know. The Buddha talked about this very thing. <laughs> the language of it in the Buddhist teachings, he talks about shame and moral dread, which sounds really bad, right? He actually said, you should have these things. <laughs> and he's basically talking about conscience. When you do something wrong, you should know, you should feel bad about it. You should, when you contemplate, you know, doing something inappropriate, you should realize, whoa, that's just going to get me in trouble, you know? That's moral dread, you know? Shame is, I don't want my neighbors to know that I'm doing this. I don't want, or let me put it another way, not your neighbors. I don't want the people that I care about to know that I'm behaving in this way. So... I don't want to behave in this way, right? So this conscience. And this can be, you know, people come to Buddhism with this idea that, oh, it's like all free form, there's no right and wrong, and yeah, and there's this relativistic aspect of it, but really the Buddha taught a very strict morality. You know, it's not always presented that way in the West, partly because kind of the progressive community that tends to be drawn to Buddhism doesn't, is often kind of, you know, there's been this sort of, I mean, it's, it's really a hangover from this a kind of 60s mentality of, you know, do your own thing or something. I remember something about that. Uh, but ultimately, it's not that helpful not to have some clarity about morality, about what's really helpful. And it's not about <laughs> sin. It's about cause and effect. What happens when I do these actions? That's the question. So, coming back to this step where it says, I turn my will and my life over. <coughs> well, my life is my actions. My will is my intention. On the Eightfold Path, which is the Buddha's steps, intention comes before action. And this is something the Buddha talks about. He says, your motivation for your actions is what really conditions the results of your actions. So it's not enough just to do the right thing, although that helps, but it's important to develop a heart that's really, I'll say pure, but let's not go you know, too pure. You know. a, a heart that's really inclining toward the positive. So a lot of then what the Buddha is talking about and teaching, there's a whole category of what he's teaching, which is the actions we should take. So there's things like the five precepts. Very familiar to anybody who's been in any religion. Not to kill, not to steal, not to harm with our sexuality. Not to lie or harm with speech. And then the fifth precept is to not use intoxicants. It's very convenient for us. Very few Western Buddhists follow that fifth precept. So that puts us ahead of the game. <laughs> so that's pretty simple. I mean, not easy to follow that. Uh, obviously, you know, well, yeah, hopefully it's not difficult for you to avoid killing humans, but in Buddhism, we're not supposed to kill anything, so that's. You got that whole issue to deal with. Does it, do I have to be a vegetarian? Do I have to, uh, you know, let the rats take over my basement? Whatever. Um, 
to not steal and you know, what does that mean? Well, of course, that means I don't, you know, go into somebody's house and take their possessions, <laughs> but there's other ways that we steal. So to become sensitive to that, uh, to not harm with our sexuality, very powerful. Many of us have had sexual addiction of some kind or, uh, can, you know, uh, acted unskillfully. Usually when I broke, one of the things I like to say is when I broke the, I don't know if I like to say it, but it's true. When I broke the fifth precept in using intoxicants, I tended to break the other four mm-hmm. precepts, you know, particularly the ones around sexuality and speech. and um, Well, pretty much all of them. Um, but this, this presents a, a real, you know, a roadmap for our, our behavior. And it's very f- similar to what you get really in 12-step programs, even though I think this is something that many people outside of 12-step programs don't realize that there's a whole moral component to recovery, that it's not supposed to just that you stop drinking using, but that you're actually start to try to be more honest and, uh, you know, uh, be, have integrity in your sexual relationships and all of that is part of recovery. So uh, we know that. So that's part of turning it over, right? Because that's powerful. Your actions are powerful. The law of karma is a power greater than you. You can't control it. You can't do something and not get a result. You can't do a harmful thing without harming yourself or others or both. So that's, the law of karma to me is God. I mean, basically that's, that's the main, that's the big definition. But when you, so when you look at Buddhism, you've got the five precepts for to create karmic circumstances. You also have the power of mindfulness. When you act mindfully, there po- tends to be positive results. When you're unmindful, tends to be negative results, right? So again, that's a power. Now, the difference between the sort of traditional view of God up here pulling the strings and this view is that in this way, there isn't some... Uh, being that has a preference or is making decisions for you, it's rather, there's a power. You have a relationship to it. You can choose or cultivate the ability to be in harmony with that power. I can work at being mindful. Or I can say, oh, what's the point of that? I, you know, I'm having a good time. Forget it. Don't bother me. And there are results from that, you know. I get the results. It's not personal. You're not being punished. It's just, oh, you weren't looking. You stepped in the hole. You know, that's just, you weren't mindful, and that happened. Okay. So we just, you know, kind of see that, but that's that's powerful, you know, because you can break your foot, you know. I saw somebody one time on a month-long retreat up here. Someone who was being mindful, or maybe for a moment they weren't mindful. Their foot had fallen asleep, and they stood up and tried to walk, and she broke her ankle. Right in the middle of a re- like two or three weeks into a retreat. And that's just, you know, that happens in a split second. People die on the highway in a split second because they stop being mindful. Uh, sometimes you cannot be mindful, as you notice when you're meditating, and there's no obvious repercussions. But there are some times when you should, I will say, crank up your mindfulness. <laughs> like be, when you're moving rapidly in a you know, multi-ton vehicle with a lot of other rapidly moving multi-ton vehicles around you. Because you know? um, your life is threatened in that moment. So, okay, mindfulness, very powerful. The, it operates through the law of karma. The action of being mindful brings a result. The action of being non-mindful brings a result. Concentration, another aspect of meditation, very, very powerful aspect. The ability to focus. Uh, this is what you know, uh, Lee Brasington, who I read from last week, I mentioned he's a computer programmer. Well, he has a tremendous capacity for concentration. And it was partly cultivated and partly by being a computer programmer and partly he was a computer programmer because he had that capacity. So it's very, he's had tremendously powerful of effects in his meditation through that. 
as well as in his work life. He's been very successful in his work life. Um, so that's one area of sort of uh, of higher power. And I'm just going to put this kind of under the Eightfold Path. So there's obviously eight elements, and I haven't gone over all of them, but that gives you sort of an idea. Another aspect of higher power that's really important is what I would call the power of wisdom. And this, again, has to do with our relationship to fundamental truths. So whereas with the Eightfold Path, it's our relationship, it's more of our karmic relationship with powers that we can kind of activate, like I can activate mindfulness, or I can activate right speech or intention. With the power of wisdom, it's more about how do I relate to the truth of impermanence. So there are three classical truths that the Buddha talks about, the truth of impermanence, the truth of suffering, and the truth of not-self. These are sometimes called characteristics of existence. So impermanence is an easy one to talk about because it's so obvious. Everything is constantly changing. How do I relate to that? Well, most of us relate to that by being in denial about it, or by in, sometimes by intentionally trying to fight against it. So when we you know, try to look younger, for instance, and, and who doesn't? People who are young, that's who. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> You know, it used to be, if you watch old movies, that like, you know, particularly men wanted to look older because they, were, they would take, be taken more seriously, right? You'd see a guy in his 20s and be wearing like this suit and he'd be kind of like, you know, a beard and stuff and trying to, you know, because he would be taken seriously. as a, Now you have guys in their 60s in their sweatpants trying to look like rappers or something. Anyway, maybe they are rappers. I don't know. It could be. Are there any 60-year-old rappers there? Have they gotten that old yet? Well, we'll investigate that in our off time. So the power of impermanence is that everything is constantly changing. If you are out of harmony with that, you're going to be in pain. You know, When it's like you look in the mirror and you go, oh no, I'm getting old, why is that happening? You know, that's... Or if you go, wow, interesting. You know, who knew? You know, we, we're always trying to hold on to things, and that's, again, I think it's a very natural human desire, and, it, and I think, in fact, if we are constantly aware of impermanence, I think it would kind of make us crazy. So it's, it's enough to just remind yourself multiple times in the day. Uh, and again, getting into a car to remind yourself that you're impermanent. So if you don't make it there, you'll, you'll know why. Um, if we can look at our experience through this lens of wisdom, then there's a tremendous freedom that comes from it. You know, I mean, when people get sick, when people die, we naturally have a sense of that's sad and it's tragic, uh, but it's, it shouldn't be a shock, you know. It, we, it, to see it clearly is to see that that's a natural process. And, you know, we're not going to necessarily go up to the grieving widow and say, oh, it's just a natural process, don't worry about it, you know. It's not, it's not that we're, but that we internally are able to kind of breathe and go, oh, right, impermanence. You know, that, it really, it gives you, you know, to look at, again, something like politics, you know. I mean, it's crazy. If you're looking every day, which, you know, it's hard not to, what's happening in the world, you kind of go, Jesus, you know, what, where are we going? This is insane. When I was about 18, which would have been in the late 60s, my parents had some people over for cocktails, as they would often do. And this older woman... I was, I was in that kind of 18-year-old apocalyptic mood in 1968, which is one of those apocalyptic years. Um, you know, and talking about like the world kind of coming to an end or everything. And this woman said to me, um, everybody thinks 
that the world's going to end during their life. That's just, and, and it, that really stayed with me, you know, and, and that, that that was a kind of a youthful fantasy. And, and I've actually come to see that as um, founded in the idea that we can't envision the world continuing without us. That, you know, it's easier to think, well, you know, in a hundred years, the environment's going to be so bad that everybody's going to die on Earth. Or, you know, there are a lot of asteroids. <laughs> and there was just an article, I read it, you know, the dinosaurs, hey, we're going to be... You know, that's easier to say, oh, you know, in a hundred years, nobody will realize that I was alive. I mean, that's... Oh, really? Wow. My books will be out of public... I mean, oh, I'm sorry, it's not about me. You know, and, you know, there is this sort of perennial effort to kind of be immortal, right? The Hall of Fame, you know, and the, oh, to be the Shakespeare, or, you know. The Buddha talked about that he would be forgotten <laughs> in so many thousand years. Unfortunately, he said that if women became nuns, it was going to be much shorter shorter period of time before that happened. So there was even a little sexism going on there. Although, I don't know, maybe he was right. It's not the women's fault, but who knows. Um, how about that Violence Against Women Act? Whew, talk about bizarre. Now, why is it that they make laws that, like, stop being laws after a while? Oh, you know, after about 10 years, I don't think we really need to worry about violence against women. We'll just let that, you know. And those... Uh, you know, the, those automatic weapons, I mean, we'll just you know, we'll make them illegal for a little while. And then we'll just let them be legal again. Because, you know, huh? Okay, sorry. I know I'm supposed to be an impartial spiritual teacher, but forget it. Um, so this idea of really keeping something simple like impermanence in the front of our consciousness is a tremendous freedom from suffering. Every time we hit that wall, oh man, the car got scratched. Oh, impermanence, you know. <laughs> oh, there's no food in the refrigerator. Oh, impermanence. <laughs> Not, oh my, you know what, this is such a hassle. I mean, it's called life, it's such a hassle. You know when the word hassle came into the uh, common usage at the same time that marijuana came into common usage. It's true. You go back and look. That's in, it was in the 60s when people started to say hassle and paranoid, and they also got the munchies. But anyway, that's... You know. Another truth is the truth of suffering. You know, that things just aren't going to arrive at a perfect state. I mean, a lot of people, I know I came to Buddhism thinking, I'm going to get enlightened and then it's all going to be good. Just click it in, no more effort, it's just going to be... No. You know, it's the nature, because of impermanence, you can't arrive. <laughs> You're always in process. You're never there. You know, that, that feeling of desire that is so common and so much, uh, you know, a, an engine in our lives, the feeling of desire says, once I get this, once I get home and get to that chocolate, then I'll be okay. And that I'll, I'll be satisfied. If I could just get laid, then I'll be satisfied. But, you know, in the movies, well, I don't know, maybe just in the movies, the cigarette after sex, that's the giveaway. Because if sex were enough, you wouldn't need a cigarette afterwards. <laughs> but it's not enough. You need the cigarette. Well, I don't smoke, but anyway. Um, the, so the, the irony, and this is one of the core ideas the Buddha saw, is that the, the desire is telling us that if we just act on it, and get that thing, then we'll be done. Then we'll be okay. So this is where permanence and, and suffering kind of intersect. But 
Instead, the problem is the desire itself. The desire is what's the, is the pain. That's the discomfort. The feeling that something is missing. When you let go, and you just go, well, this is all I need. What else do I need? Yeah, I need to have food, a place to live. This is the principle of renunciation. That if we practice letting go, we will see that it was the grasping itself that was causing us suffering. When do you feel satisfied? Is it when you get everything you want? Or is it when you stop wanting to get? And when we meditate and we have a moment of peace, it's not because we got something. It's just the opposite. It's that we let go of something. We let go of the grasping, of the wanting anything to be different. So a lot of our work in meditation is to, be, is to become accepting of how things are. It's like, oh, I'm falling asleep in meditation. Oh, man, I hate that. Oh, wait. No, it's okay. I'm just falling asleep. Oh, my back hurts when I meditate. Oh, i got to change my... Wait, oh, it's just a sensation. Okay. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Not bad. Just how it is. So when we see that life through that lens... There isn't so much grasping. We understand, yeah, there's always going to be something. There's always going to be something I want. That's okay. It doesn't mean I can't try to get things. But I know that when I get it, it's not going to be an arrival. It's just going to be another stop on the way. So the third aspect of wisdom is the is seeing the uh, lack of a solid identity or self and how trying to create or hold on to or live through the lens of self creates suffering. So it's again something that the 12 steps say in their own way that self-centeredness, selfishness, self-centeredness, that was the problem. And when when the traditions say Anonymity was the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, reminding us to place principles before personalities. It's talking about how I, I don't, I don't, I think from a Buddhist viewpoint, I think we can shed more light on that than the actual twelve steps do. But that that it's it's not about not saying what your name is, anonymity, or not letting people know who you are but rather not clinging to identity. When you go into a meeting, a lot of people will say, people who resist the idea of going to a program say, well, I don't want to just say I'm an alcoholic because it seems like I'm you know, taking on this identity. But really what's happening when you go into a meeting is you're letting go of all your other identities. <laughs> you're just making it very simple and, it, and the identity that you have is a shared one. So you're not kind of like, oh, I'm unique and special here. It's like, I'm just... Um, you know, I'm just Kevin alcoholic, and we all have the last name in this meeting, or I'm Kevin addict. You know. So seeing the suffering that's caused by, yeah, I'm Kevin Griffin, you know. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to go home and... Uh, I found a website yesterday, goodreads.com. Some of you probably know it. I, I'm not all that savvy, but I, found, I was sitting at breakfast and I was like, oh, I wonder if they have my book on here, you know. Oh, oh, there's a discussion about my book. Oh, what are people saying? I'm sitting at breakfast, I start reading these things to my wife and daughter, and they're like, really? Do we really care? He saved my life. Yeah, right, just make the breakfast for your daughter, okay? We, would you clean up the dishes? You know, it's like, no, they don't want a, a meditation teacher in the kitchen. Um, they want daddy, husband, you know, just do your job. So the, the, seeing how clinging to an identity of who you are just creates conflict. In it. Don't you know who I am? Yeah, good luck. So 
I'm, I'm higher than you, too, but if I stand up, so just remember that. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> higher power. I, yeah, I, I figured it was related to that, but <laughs> thanks, Max. So, um, <coughs> I want to go over the homework. We have two minutes, so we're going to run a minute or two late. If you have a babysitter or some reason, you have to be home or you just can't stand it anymore. There you go. So, I've, I've got the noting practice here, a reminder of doing that, a little hint around it. And then, uh, you know, giving you sort of a theme of acceptance for the week. Um, with the serenity prayer and um, and kind of just looking at things that you resist accepting. Because step three is, you know, one big part of it is accepting, you know, God's will, which we could just say is whatever's happening. <laughs> uh, and um, I have that little piece from the big book, um, and then uh, some suggestions with step four and five, and so I'm going to, these are some of the things, so I've, I talked about the five precepts tonight, and next week I'm going to talk more about the hindrances, um, but this is kind of a, a, a way to approach the inventory process with a Buddhist lens, um, and then I'm suggesting that you share it, uh, anything that you kind of reveal for yourself with uh, with someone you trust. Um, some suggestions for, some particular suggestions for reading. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that I also uh, really recommend, I, I, w I do want to highlight here, is the positive inventory. I'm, here I'm calling it positive precepts inventory. There are other ways to do positive inventory is partly what we did tonight in the reflecting on your own uh, inner resources is a kind of positive inventory. And, and I found, again, just sort of, I've noticed that as I've been working with the steps in this book that one of the things that was difficult for me in working the steps was what I felt was kind of a negative focus and, and uh, you know, the moral inventory and the amends and the ways I've harmed people and, and um, you know, I think that's really important and useful and I think it can also become counterproductive when we start to feel that it's all about that and, and sometimes there are people in the program who just want to kind of constantly be rubbing your face in your character defects or something and, and um, you know, that's, it's, it's not that I'm like a, no, you should be up and positive, but to me it's about what's actually true. And it's not true that everything is bad. You know, we, we need to look at both sides to actually have an accurate view of ourselves, accept our unskillful things, but also take responsibility and maybe even credit for our, our good things. You know, when somebody sa says something nice to you, um, to, to you know, someone says, well, you did a good job on that, and you go, well, well, it wasn't really that good. First of all, you're interfering with their um, good karma of being grateful, you know, and generous, and you know you're actually harming them, and you're, and then you're also denying your own positive qualities. So, um, and I, and I think that can be harder for us to do than than the uh, negative stuff. So to look at that stuff a bit. Um, so. As I say, uh, you know, I, I think we could spend more time, and I, and I may come back a little bit to step three next week um, if something occurs to me in the meantime that I really feel I need to cover. But uh, the plan is to move to step steps four and five next week. So, um, and and I had also been hoping to spend a little time on a forgiveness meditation this week, but. Um, you might just l look at that uh, question of exploring the dimensions of forgiveness. Um, we're not really there in the steps, but uh, we will be soon. So, um, so since we've run late, I don't want to keep people and just say, may our work together be of benefit to all beings. And I look forward to 
seeing you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.